Well, it is always a privilege to uh, be at this podium, but tonight I will share that it is a special privilege to be before you because the last few years when I've been up here, I've always had to be in a chair. So tonight is the first time in about four or five years that I've been able to stand before you. So I am very happy to be up here tonight, extra happy. Um, have you ever heard the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side? Usually, of course, uh, when you hear of something better than where you are and you know if only you were there, on the other side of that fence, your life would be better. Most advertising campaigns are founded on that principle, right? I know as a child, um, and even now, I have found myself thinking that my life would be so much better if only I had that ShamWow to clean my car. Or maybe I really need a Snuggie, you know, those blankets you can wear, and then my life would be great. The right mascara will make my eyes so beautiful, and then maybe that new toothpaste will make my teeth glisten, and then everyone will love and respect me. I think we all experience this longing for a better reality when we're on the Eisenhower heading into Chicago. If only I could switch just one lane over, then I will be zooming to the city so much more quickly. And then we switch lanes and stop immediately. Uh, only, it happens to me also in checkout lines in the grocery store. I'm sure it never happens to you. One time, my brother and I had an experience like this where we expected something wonderful and we were disappointed. We were traveling with our family in Washington State. My mother grew up there, so we would often travel to Washington to enjoy the mountains and the ocean in the Northwest. In the eastern part of the state, there's a strong agriculture and winemaking industry. My brother's wife and our folks indulged us and allowed the two of us to take a side trip across the state to visit wine country together. It wasn't that we were bored with the family, but we were just excited to have a little culinary adventure, just the two of us. We mapped out our travels and calculated which wineries we would visit to do wine tasting and where we'd enjoy a special wine country dinner. My brother got us reservations at a nice bed and breakfast, but the thing we were the most excited about was an event at a particular winery, and the event was the Basil Festival. This captured our imaginations. My brother figured there would be crowds of wine and basil-loving visitors enjoying a lush garden atmosphere with basil plants dripping from the walkways and fine outdoor dining tables for us to relax at, like a French bistro. He thought perhaps there would be some basil and tomato tarts to sample with the wine or some herby pesto to try. I, on the other hand, somehow imagined that the festival would have a parade of basil celebrating dancers, maybe wearing togas and basil leaf garlands on their heads, inviting us to join a conga line of basil revelry. We were so excited to go to the basil festival. When we arrived, we were surprised to find ourselves as the only visitors at a decidedly unglamorous small industrial garage with a couple of card tables set up inside. The owners seemed surprised to see anyone there for the festival. <laughs> they hurriedly washed out a couple of wine glasses to give us a taste of their wine. 
There were a few clumps of wilted basil tossed on the tabletop, and then they whirred up some pesto for us in their food processor. The dancers, the togas, the French bistro tables, alas, were not to be found. My brother and I awkwardly glanced at each other, drank our complimentary wine hurriedly, and got out as fast as we could. I felt like I should purchase a bottle of wine just as a courtesy on my way out, so I did that as quickly as I could while making our speedy exit. When we got into the car, we could not help but laugh. Our visions of basil festivities were unfulfilled, for sure. <laughs> and then later, just to add insult to injury, when I opened my bottle of basil festival wine at home, the cork was covered with a black coat of mold, <laughs> making it undrinkable. The basil festival definitely did not live up to our expectations. All too often, that is what it is like in life. When we see something for what it really is, it's far too often a disappointment. And sadly, this is true for far more than just basil festivals, passing lanes, and warm snuggy blankets. We have expectations for our lives, our jobs, our families, our relationships, but the reality does not measure up to our hopes. In this dark time of year when we have been enduring cold weather, early dark nights, it can be all too easy to focus on the disappointments that we inevitably face in our lives. As I prepare the prayers of the people each week, I'm often brought to tears when I consider our world. Time and time again, we pray for victims of gun violence. We hear of the persecution of Christians. We hear of women and girls used for sex as part of war and oppression strategies abroad, and as part of selfishness and misogyny in the States. The list of concerns that can darken our hearts goes on. Climate change, war in Ukraine and the Middle East, children injured, orphaned, and traumatized by war, a paralyzed federal Congress, a troubled immigration policy on our southern border with no easy solutions, a polarized political system with a bitter presidential election brewing. But my guess is that for you, just as for me, it's not just politics and the state of the world that trouble you. It's more personal. We face the frailty of our bodies and our tenuous hold on life. Tonight, we will pray for friends and loved ones who have injuries, illnesses, life-threatening health concerns. It's scary to realize our bodies are failing, and then there are other issues, like the unfairness of a boss, the choices our children are making, the cruelty of an ex-spouse, or even the betrayal of a friend. There's no shortage of issues that make our lives difficult. Perhaps you think your life is not what you are expecting it to be. Where is God in this? Are you inwardly debating fears for the future? If you, like me, have found yourself facing some dark disappointments, or maybe even some anxieties and fears, then my hope and prayer is that considering Mark's gospel tonight and his retelling of the transfiguration story may guide you and me to a brighter path marked with renewed hope, grounded in true promise, where disappointment is not the end of the story. The story of the transfiguration is recounted in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospels that contain the most similar narratives of Jesus' life. In the Greek Orthodox Church, the Transfiguration is traditionally celebrated as a feast on August 6th, 
every year. In our Anglican tradition, Transfiguration is celebrated at the end of Epiphany, just before Lent. It is fitting that Transfiguration comes at the close of Epiphany, a season of God's revelation of himself to us, as Transfiguration is a revelation of Jesus in all of his full divinity. It also fits chronologically with the narrative of the life of Christ this way, in that it precedes Jesus moving on the path toward his crucifixion. Additionally, it is a reminder for us as we face the path of Lent that leads to Jesus' death in our liturgical year, that he is divine, that his death is all part of a plan, and that he will prevail. We see in the book of Mark that the transfiguration divides his book in half. Prior to this passage, we are reading prior to this passage that we read tonight, the gospel is focused on Jesus' ministry and his work with the disciples. And then after the transfiguration, Jesus is moving for the next 40 days toward Jerusalem, just as we are traveling 40 days through Lent. Just prior to the events described in our passage tonight, a couple of major conversations transpired between Jesus and the disciples. In chapter 8, we read that Peter declared he believed Jesus to be the Messiah. Then, although I'm sure with that conclusion, Peter and the disciples were hoping for a royal parade of coronation, probably even grander than my basal festival fantasies, Jesus predicts his death. In chapter 8, we read, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. So Peter gets a fierce limit set. I'm sure he's, however, he's not the only one there who's uncomfortable with what Jesus is communicating. But Jesus is not stopped there with predicting only his own death. As chapter 8, which precedes our reading tonight, continues, we read, Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is a confusing and difficult message to hear. At the end of the Super Bowl tomorrow, when either the 49ers or the Chiefs win, the players and the fans will not be thinking about sacrifice and suffering. No, the quarterback is going to Disney World. He and his teammates will be thinking of joy and triumph. They'll be getting fitted for big gaudy rings and kissing a trophy. They'll be basking in their success and soaking up all the cheers. They will not be considering rejection. They'll be feeling powerful, large, and in charge. And that is how the disciples expected to be feeling. However, we see a stark contrast between this picture of Super Bowl victory with what the disciples experienced when they perceived this bright, exciting light of the truth, the Messiah Jesus is here, then they were hit with even harder truth, the dark shadow of this truth. He will die, and I will have to take up my cross to follow him. No coronation, no conga line. Where is the triumph in that? I'm sure that the light of joy dimmed in their eyes. So when they were confronted by that. So then against this backdrop, six days later, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to accompany him up a mountain. Traditionally, this mountain is considered to be Mount Tabor, although some scholars have speculated it could have been another mountain, such as Mount Hermon or Mount Meron. 
The wait is six days, Mark tells us. Matthew says that they hiked up the mountain after six days, while Luke says eight days. In short, it was a span of a week. The amount of time is significant in that a week is the same amount of time God used to create the world. A week's time is associated with perfection and completion. So it is not a random mention by Mark in our text that it was after a week that they turned to the mountain. A week after this declaration of the future, a week after recognizing Jesus as Messiah, then they turn toward the mountain. I wonder what Peter and the sons of Zebedee thought was going to happen at the top of the mountain. Were they eagerly following? Did they feel special because they were selected? Was the mention of death and crosses darkening their minds? Then, without any preamble or fanfare, Mark tells us in the end of verses 2 and 3 in chapter 9 that when they arrived at the mountaintop, there Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling and white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. They are confronted by Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus was not just fully human in their presence, but fully divine, as they could see. The word Mark uses in the Greek is metamorphora, meaning to change form. Of course, this is the origin of our English word metamorphosis. Luke says the appearance of his face changed, and Matthew says his face shone like the sun. The NASB translation tells us his garments became radiant, casting rays of light. The light on this mountaintop was better than sunshine. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, this light is called taboric light, named for Mount Tabor. It is also called uncreated light, light emanating directly from God. It was truly the glory of God revealed. For those of you who are familiar with it, I think the Billy Graham Center has tried to replicate this experience with their clouds and crossroom at the end of the museum tour, but I think that's probably a pale replica of the experience. One theologian I read said that although Jesus appeared to change, Peter, James, and John were really just given the gift of seeing Jesus truly as he was, not just as human. They were accustomed to that view, but also as fully God, as if the scales had been removed from their eyes. If I put myself in the place of the brothers, James and John, who less than three years previously had left their father Zebedee in the boat to follow this new radical rabbi, and Peter, the impulsive and passionate disciple, and I think of them eating, walking, and sleeping alongside Jesus, then this transfiguration episode takes on new significance. They knew Jesus in a human way that we do not. They knew how he liked his fish cooked, and if he liked his bread a little bit charred or maybe a little underdone. They knew how Jesus looked when he was tired, and how his voice cracked when he had not had enough sleep. After living beside Jesus as fully man, sweating, sleeping, eating, drinking, he was revealed to them as fully God. For us, we've always been accustomed to thinking of him as fully God and fully man. Not to say that sometimes our faith isn't tried, but that's been our context. For these disciples, who had just declared that he was indeed the Messiah, the experience of seeing him revealed in all his brightly lit glory as God must have been even more overwhelming than it would be for us. Unlike the Basil Festival and so much of life, the Transfiguration revealed Jesus to be so much more than expected, much better than imagined.
My friends from the Wade Center have introduced me to Malcolm Geit, who is a poet priest on faculty at Cambridge. Words fail me in describing the wonder and beauty of the transfiguration. I think a poet can do a much better job for us, so I'd like to share a brief sonnet that Father Geit wrote entitled Transfiguration. For that one moment in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within a sudden blaze of long extinguished hope. Trembled and tingled through the tender skin, nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. Yes, the transfiguration showed them how things really are. Now, there on the mountaintop, we have Jesus revealed in his full divinity, radiating light. And then Elijah and Moses appear as well. No wonder Mark describes Peter as frightened. Moses appears as a representative of the law. Elijah appears as a representative of prophecy, although both were prophets and both were of the Old Testament and lived under the law. Their presence showed that Jesus was the Lord of the prophets and of the law, that he came not to destroy the law but to fulfill it. Their discussion also distinguishes Jesus as their Lord and Master as well. It validates his position as fully God. Now let's return to our friend Peter. As Jesus confers with Moses and Elijah, here comes Peter. The way Mark tells the story, while Moses and Elijah are still there, Peter proposes, let's build worship buildings. For all three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, Peter glibly remarks, this is great. Talk about gilding the lily. I like how Mark says he didn't know what to say because he was frightened. But you know, I do wonder if poor Peter was looking for an out. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, had some thoughts about this that make sense to me. He said, of course the worship part is understandable. Who wouldn't want to offer adoration and devotion? After seeing Jesus in all of his glory, that does make sense. But also, if you're on top of a mountain tending to a new worship center, then of course you're not on the road to Jerusalem taking up your cross and facing death either, are you? It would be a great way to avoid that unpleasant prophecy that Jesus had just mentioned a week before. Now, as we return to Mark's narrative, we read God the Father calls out from a cloud. We've seen God appear in a cloud a number of times throughout scripture, giving us these glimpses of glory. This harkens back to the way the Lord led Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud. Other Old Testament passages tell us of God appearing as a cloud in the temple. And the voice of God when Jesus was baptized is echoed here. This is my son whom I love. And here in the mountaintop they are also told, listen to him. Then Moses and Elijah are gone. The light of the transfiguration recedes. And they are alone now with fully human Jesus again. The transfiguration comes to us in our liturgical year now, just before Lent, a time of repentance as we reflect on our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Lent, 
which begins this week with Ash Wednesday, is an invitation to walk more closely with him by turning away from some of the world's cheap distractions. It is a sober time of reflection after a time of coldness and darkness in the world, both in terms of the season and in terms of the world's events. When we stop to consider the circumstances of the world, our country, the church, and our circle of loved ones, there can be much heaviness. We often do not see the joyful basil festival of our dreams or the tabernacle worship center on the mountain that we would prefer to our weary disappointments, broken hearts, and fears, the crosses we are called to bear. But take heart. The transfiguration is a reminder to bring with us into the Lenten season and into our lives. As we know, Jesus is not just a historical figure. He is not just a wise man who lived many years ago. He is fully God, but rather than remain in glory, he became fully human to walk with us. He took on one of these frail, weak bodies like ours and lived among us because of his love for us. He suffered with us and chose crucifixion for our sake. The gift of the transfiguration is a reminder that Jesus, fully man, was also fully God. And he is no disappointment. He came to fulfill the law and to fulfill all of our hopes and expectations. So here we are tonight, still with many fears and anxieties. And we have a call from Jesus to follow him to Jerusalem, to take up our crosses and follow him. What does it mean to have hope when you are called to take up your cross and follow? What crosses are you carrying now? Where do you need to receive some of that transfiguration light, some of that divine, miraculous intervention of hope and confidence to buoy you? Where do you need to invite our triune and divine God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to show himself to you now in your life? He is faithful. He will journey with you. He will keep his promises to you. And he will not disappoint. He will provide what you need. The light on the mountain shines for you still. Amen.